This is episode 259 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare history content when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Duncan Phillips, fine art and antiques researcher and writer. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The community could punish people if they thought the marriage was inappropriate, but the bans were read to make sure that there was nothing to prevent the wedding. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The difference in Shakespeare's plays between a tragedy and a comedy is defined as whether or not the characters end in marriage or in death. The comedies often showcase the promise of a marriage or even sometimes multiple marriages with proposals happening in the midst of fun and elaborate parties, including songs, dances, and frivolity. Then, of course, those happy marriages are starkly contrasted with those we see in Shakespeare's tragedies, where marital relationships are marred by jealousy, suspicion, or betrayal. Shakespeare's works give us a glimpse into what marriage customs were for turn of the 17th century England, but they're far from providing any kind of definition for what was normal. In order to explore the history of marriage customs for Shakespeare's lifetime and understand better what we could expect to see if we had attended a 17th century marriage in England, we're sitting down today with our guest and expert on the history of marriage traditions, George Monger. George Monger is a freelance heritage conservation consultant, folklorist, and writer. His published works include the first edition of ABC Clio's Marriage Customs of the World and Discovering the Folklore and Traditions of Marriage. He has contributed to many other publications, journals, and magazines on the history and tradition of marriage. You can find links to more of George's work and learn more about his research in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, George. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hello, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So glad to have you. With Shakespeare's own marriage, he is said to have gotten married to Anne Hathaway in part because of Susanna. They were pregnant with Susanna when they got married. But George, what is the history of shotgun marriages in Shakespeare's lifetime? Does it make sense for Shakespeare to have gotten married because his wife was pregnant? Yes. I mean, it wasn't so much a shotgun marriage as being a sort of normal sort of thing. It could be that they had been betrothed or espoused, and there are two forms of espousal. And betrothal and espousal was a, a binding ceremony, actually, almost or just as important as a, as the marriage ceremony itself. And in fact, the sort of espousal, betrothal ceremony was sort of incorporated into the Church of England marriage ceremony service. So they might have been espoused, and there are two forms of espousal. There's a 
espousal in present day or in espousal in future. And it's it was a promise to marry, marry, but it's almost gave them they're in sort of a, a marriage limbo because they were promised in marriage and they could actually have the, the conjugal rights. If uh, it was espousal in future, oh, it's a promise to marriage in the future. But if they took their conjugal rights, then they had uh, sealed the deal. So they couldn't get out of it later on. It wasn't something that could that people would particularly frown at because it was all part of the the setup. You know, it, they, they'd been pro- obviously been promised in marriage. And nothing inappropriate about that relationship at all. Absolutely nothing. No, no. There's a lot of there are a, a lot of trial marriage things that happened in Britain and other places. Really, there was a a thing called getting wed over, known as being wed over the broom, broomstick marriage, where a couple would. This is much later on, and not necessarily in Shakespeare's time, but they would jump a broom over a that's been laid in the doorway. They mustn't touch the broom as they jump and it's a sort of trial managed for you know a year and a day and if they didn't work out during that year and a day they could undo it by jumping back over the broom there were sort of informal marriages like that and the children of any marriage of that sort would never considered as bastards or anything like that it was just they were considered completely legitimate just to be kind of clarify things here, while the over the broomstick ceremony was something that happened after Shakespeare's lifetime, the concept of an informal or trial marriage did exist for Shakespeare's yeah. lifetime. Yeah. 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 I mean, for all I know, the broomstick marriage might have happened then. It's just, it probably wasn't recorded. Interestingly enough, and that's a complete sideline during my research into marriage, I, I got hold of a book, um, Wedding Planning, uh, an American book. And they claim slave owners sometimes marry their slaves and haven't jumped the broomstick. And in this book on uh, wedding planning, they try to claim that as a slave marriage and reclaim it as uh, part of the uh, African-American heritage. And I thought it was sort of okay. Okay, but I can't help feeling that the slave owners were almost taking the mickey out of the slaves wanting to get married by making them jump the broom. But that's a by the by. (laughs) Well, and and it does that ceremony does exist here in I mean, it's it's almost a part of folklore today. But I'm familiar with the phrase and with the practice here um, Mm. among not just African-American portions of society, but Caucasian parts of society as well have have this typically it's rural areas here in the u.s but yeah, yeah that's you're, right. you're right we totally have the foundation for that part of history but yeah. now of course we can't discuss marriage without discussing the age at which someone gets married specifically because in romeo and juliet the lovers are quite young juliet is only 13 at the time of her marriage to romeo and what was the most common age for a man and woman to marry? I mean, 13 seems radically young for us, but was it for Shakespeare's audience? Certainly not. uh, Especially amongst the the sort of class of Romeo and Juliet, it wouldn't be uncommon for children to be betrothed or espoused at a very young age. And they would actually be looking uh, for marriage when they achieved puberty. 
So it would not be an uncommon thing within the class of the Romeo and Juliet. So the the shock value or the the surprise there between the families over Romeo and Juliet being together was about them being warring families and not about them being children. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amongst most people, a lot of research for that period suggests that generally speaking, people got married a little bit older in their 20s. And there are a lot of things that determined whether or not somebody could get married. For example, having the means to get married would be a big thing. But certainly amongst the aristocracy, such things would not be unusual. You mentioned the espousal and that there were two you know, forms of this, but I want to ask you about hand fasting. What does it mean for a couple to have been hand fasted in public prior to their marriage ceremony? Is this part of that espousal? Yeah, yes. It's another form uh, of betrothal. And lots of things like hand fasting, betrothal, espousal might well have been done in public because it's a public thing. And it's a ceremony. And it could make promises of what the dowry is going to be and that sort of thing. But it's done in public. And weddings were very much a public event. There's a number of these things like hand fasting would have taken place in the church porch, for example. It was a, for the American audience, um, I came unstuck uh, with this a bit um, when I was doing my book. The sub-editor didn't understand that porch, church porch in Britain was a sort of structure coming over the doorway and not a sort of platform outside your house. And so she changed my heading from marriage in the church porch to marriage on the church porch, which would involve quite a lot of uh, danger because they could have fallen off. So the, these, some of these uh, things like hand fasting would have taken place in the church porch in public so that everybody can see what's happening and who's getting together. How is that different from what we know as reading of the bands? Okay, the reading of the bands is another part of the ceremony, if you like. Okay, so it's all just different elements of the yeah. same espousal. I mean, they, they sort okay. of coalesce together, but reading of the bands was not instigated until about the year 1200. and. It was, again, very much part of the public announcement of the, the marriage, the wedding, and that the couple are coming together. Because is, where, marriage is not always just a personal thing between the man and the woman. It is a part as a community event. And sometimes the, the community could punish people if they thought the marriage was inappropriate but the bands were read to make sure that there was nothing to prevent the wedding so it was just the opportunity to say you know if, or if anybody's got issues now's the time to sort them out yeah yeah would there i mean what did the engagement period look like i mean you're mentioning that there's a there's the espousal that comes before the actual marriage and it sounds like the intended husband and intended wife here are are living together sometimes during that espousal period but i i wonder about other customs like did the husband have to ask permission of the fathers before this took place or was it um only a, an a 
contract between the two people getting married? Would depend a bit. I I think for most people, there would be. You would have to have some permission from the family. And as I say, you, there's also a tacit permission from the community as well. Um, oh, really? Like from the town where you lived and had to approve? Yeah, your yeah. Marriage? I mean, if 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 people thought it was, it was completely inappropriate this marriage, they they would sometimes do sort of a community punishment on sort of things that this this one that's called riding the stang, which is sort of almost running people out of town. (laughs) It was very much a a community thing, but amongst probably merchant classes and certainly upper aristocracy and the monarch, it wouldn't necessarily be the couple themselves. It would be arranged between the families. Well, what about what the the women would wear when they ended up getting married? I mean, did women wear the white dress and a veil in Shakespeare's lifetime, or was a bride visually identifiable in some way? Yeah, she would be identified. There's, I just think I see if I can find it. A description of an Elizabethan wedding: the bride and the groom would wear the best clothes. They wouldn't necessarily wear white. And if you think back to Shakespeare's times, the Ability to keep something nice and pristine and white would be not many people will be able to do that. Again, well, lots of mud in London, we will remember. Yes, yeah, it's something that your royalty and people like that could probably do. Wonderful white wedding dress that uh, everybody considers as being the, the dress of a bride really didn't come into society till we're talking about the 19th century, probably. So for Shakespeare's lifetime, and certainly for someone like Anne Hathaway, she probably would have worn whatever was the best outfit she owned at the time and, and obviously tried tried to look nice. And it was a special day, but she didn't necessarily have a wedding dress the way we think of today. No. No. Okay. You mentioned the, the wedding ceremony taking place on the porch of a church, or would they actually have gone into the church and walked down the aisle and stood before a priest the way we think of today? In Shakespeare's time, they probably would have just been going into the church to marry. As just like a legal contract of, yes, we're all here and this is what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I've just found here a quote from another Elizabethan wedding. It's from the history of of John Newcomb, the wealthy clothier of Newbury, was written in 1633. And this is a description of their wedding clothes, really. And it says, it was thus that John Newcomb's spouse was led to her marriage by two dainty urchins, bravely decked with laces and sprigs of rosemary. The bride being attired in a gown of sheep russet and a kirtle of fine worsted, her hair attired with with a filament of gold and her hair as yellow as gold hanging down behind her, which was curiously combed and plaited according to the manner of those days. She was led to church between two sweet boys with bright laces and rosemary tied about their silken sleeves. Then there were fair bride cup of silver gilt carried before her, wherein was a goodly branch of rosemary gilded very fair, and hung about with silver ribbons of all colours. Next there was a noise of musicians that played all the way before her. After her came the chiefest maidens of country, some bearing bride cakes and some garlands of wheat, finely gilded, and so passed the church, and and the bridegroom finely apparelled, with the young men followed close behind. 
you know, this is, this is obviously a wedding <laughs> session. And it sounds very fine and very decorative of, of yeah. lots of gilding yeah. going on. Yeah, I mean, okay, as a wealthy family, there were things like bride favours, ribbons that see, that they, the bride would wear or, or she'd give out bride favours to bystanders to indicate a wedding. Um, another thing that used to be given out with gloves to, to uh, people that came to the wedding. There was all these indications. I think of that almost as like the the wedding announcements that we put in the newspaper. Because if you think yeah. about a small town, you know you are sharing that day with these people. Because especially if you've lived there your whole life, the townspeople would know both the bride and the groom and have seen mm. them grow up. And it was really a a celebration, uh, not just of of the family, but but to share it with the town. And so to share these gifts, I, I can see a parallel there with, you know, yeah. other forms of public announcement. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was, it was a lovely story. And again, it's, this is into the 20th century. When was it? That's all mid late 20th century. The story of a, a wedding and the, the a custom in, in this particular town was for the choir boys and girls too far the way they'd tie up the church gates so the couple after the wedding couldn't get out until they paid money to the choir or to the children and uh there's a story about the couple that got uh, married in in the church and they came out and they were not very familiar with this custom and when they came out the bride's father paid the choir boys who were barring the way and to one of the choir boys this was proved positive that the father was actually the groom oh no so how, how these, embarrassing <laughs> uh, so these customs had had a point in that they they were again you, you know the analogy with with the the newspaper announcement it t- tells everybody the, we've got married we, this is the, the wedding there was a certain process that you were expected yeah. to follow. And 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 they weren't just holding the bride and groom hostage, you know, to be mischievous. There was a there was a purpose was to, a to lock in the point. gate. And yeah. yeah. Well, now you mentioned rosemary several times as being tied to the I want to call them, you know, ring bearers, but the attendants there for the for the bride. They had silk sleeves and tied up with <clears> rosemary, and the bride had rosemary. And I know rosemary connects with remembrance, but I wonder if there's any other kind of flowers or certain songs that that choir would have been singing because it was a wedding, something akin to the wedding march. Were there any specifics like that that were traditional for Shakespeare's Not lifetime? The time aware of they they okay it's uh i'm just checking up on the rosemary thing <laughs> rosemary smells nice too so i can only imagine yeah, there yeah. was a reason I mean, it's, it's using quite a number of things um uh czechoslovakian tradition where the, this man would go around the village issuing the wedding invitations and they would wear rosemary in the hats as as and it'll be part of the wedding wreath that the bride would wear on her head. It's symbolizing purity, wisdom, love, joy, loyalty, remembrance of and virginity, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of cultural and historical reasons there to include to include rosemary yeah, yeah. everywhere. I mean, yeah. it, We've talked about the 
the marriage ceremony and the espousal. But I wonder in, at least in Shakespeare's plays, when he's portraying marriages on stage, there's always accompaniment of large feasts and dances or songs. And it's, it's very similar to what I think of as a marriage reception today, where you've had the official ceremony and now all of your family and friends are, are celebrating the day with you. And I wonder if that's historically accurate. Was Shakespeare just having some fun because it's a play and, and he wanted to, to do it up big? Or was it common to have a lavish feast or a dinner party for your family and friends after a wedding ceremony? It was common. It was very often there because, again, as a, it was a community event and you'd have, in some parishes, that the churches actually had a marriage room where people could use to celebrate the wedding with with food and drink and things and um you get accounts of some of the the clergy being very annoyed and upset and uh shocked by the excess drinking and everything at the wedding parties so they could overdo it at these parties so, right? so yeah it was a it was a thing and sometimes you'd have the the community providing or yeah sort of getting together to provide the food and drink it's nice to know it goes both ways, that the community is not only able to protest your wedding and potentially stop it from happening or or run you out of town on a rail, you know, if they don't like <laughs> yeah. it. But the, the flip side is when they do approve of your marriage, they're going to the effort of putting together your wedding reception. So at, at least there's two mm. sides to that, I think. Yeah, quite often the community will come together to help a couple. I mean, marriages usually happen when they had there was enough resources to have the marriage but there were things like things called penny weddings where each of the guests would contribute a bit of money or something to to help pay for the for the wedding sometimes they'd sell parts of the bride favor the ribbons and things that the bride would wear to help the couple and set them up oh that's a um, great tradition so is there's all sorts of things going on going on here and so Shakespeare was not particularly... Not exaggerating, maybe. Not yes, exaggerating, yeah. yes, thank you. <laughs> As I say, so there were certainly some accounts of clergy getting very oh, <laughs> puffy about the, the weddings. Uh, <laughs> it, it couldn't, it's not totally unusual for the crowd to be a bit unruly and boisterous. Sure. Well, <laughs> now one example of marriages that happens in Shakespeare's plays comes from As You Like It. And that play features a double wedding where there's two couples getting married in a, in a joint wedding ceremony. And was that actually done during Shakespeare's lifetime? Would would there have been marriages where it's multiple couples getting married at the same time? I don't know too many accounts of it, but I think it is very likely because it's not a an unusual unusual thing for multiple weddings in later years as well in the 19th century and that so well i know we would love to look into the history of marriages from shakespeare's lifetime further to explore some of these cultural traditions that they had as well as to hear some of the stories of the clergy getting getting upset with the townspeople in their their overdone wedding ceremony where can we go to find more information on marriages and marriage customs from shakespeare's lifetime there are a few decent books which i and I will send you the references to them. But uh, Lawrence Stone, his book, The Family Sets and Marriage in England, 1500 to 1800, mm-hmm. is a very good one. John 
Gillis, for better for worse, British marriage is 1600 to the present, is another, it's a very, an excellent book to, to look at. As Alan McFarlane, Marriage and Love in England, 1300 to 1840, and Jack Goody's The Development of Family and Marriage in Europe. They're all very good texts to, to uh, go to. Those are excellent resources. Thank you. We'll um we'll place links to these in the show notes for today's episode. George is being kind enough to send us the the titles and the authors over email, so I'll make sure that all of the spelling is there and we'll find links for you and place them in the show notes so you can go um, directly and find the works that he's recommending and not have to search around for those. So make sure you go to the show notes to find that. Now, George, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friend <laughs> in England, tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, I was very, very difficult when he came to because I was my, my mood changes so <laughs> rapidly. Uh, and I, I think the, the sort of wonderful folkloric and historic parodying and uh, sort of sideways thoughts as, as the works of Terry Pratchett. I mean. Unfortunately, you couldn't get all his works into one volume. <laughs> well, it is it is a desert island. We can pretend. So that, yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, I, I'd can... like a, a hugely bound copy of all the works. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd be well set up for your desert island with that selection. I think that's yeah. a wise wise choice yeah, I mean, for a folklorist. Is is there's some wonderful stuff in there. To, un- to unpack in there, absolutely. So, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I've been in the process of doing another book for ABC Clio, and I have to admit, that quietly, I'm behindhand with it on um, endangered intangible heritage uh, worldwide. It's uh, really interesting, but uh, quite quite a lot to research and unpick. The other thing that's I have recently been Pushed, not pushed into doing it, but galvanized into doing this research I did back in. I see that it was my first paper published in folklore of 1971, I think it is. And I recorded and researched some um, pre wedding customs that I observed when I was working in a bubblegum factory, actually. And um, so many questions there, I don't have time to ask you. <laughs> but it is a, a thing where uh, a girl, a lady getting married before she left work before uh, for, for a wedding, they, the people she worked with were sort of decorated with ribbons and streamers and parade around the factory. And, and I found that I saw this one day when I was working there, it was a holiday job. And I found it was more widespread, and I sort of did a certain amount of work on on this. And I thinking I was sort of long been thinking of revisiting that work because the the nature of work and the way people work and how they're allowed to work has changed remarkably in the last fifty years. And sort of talking with a a young friend who was married a few years ago about. I asked her, had she ever seen this? And she hadn't. And it's there's a sort of change there. So I'm re- revisiting what I did there, did back in 
the 70s and published. And thinking, well, you know, how has this changed? Is it, does this still happen? And it's sort of looking at the dynamics of folklore, so how things change and how, and what's making them change, like social pressures and work pressures and things like that. What a fascinating question to look at. And and what a great way to capture some of these things that, you, you know, you might not other, otherwise remember had even occurred because they're so, you know, just yeah. tiny slices of life. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think, you know, there's things you ask about Shakespeare's time, which might have happened, but we don't know because nobody chronicled them. And why didn't they chronicle them? Because it's every day. Why, why would I write that down? You know, it's so ordinary people didn't think of it as something to record yeah yeah in fact when i was doing my research on the uh three wedding customs i wrote to all the a load of uh, local papers to put a query out so that people could sort of maybe write to me and say yeah this happened to me yeah and one of the editors wrote back and said Yes, well, when somebody gets married, they get sort of dressed up and paraded around here, but it's not a custom or a reason. And sort of, well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> if it's happening regularly, it turns out, yeah. it's a thing. So it's it's the nature of what we've, what we know, what's carried forward, what's been. We know what's. We only know things that have been written down at the time, or by antiquarians or somebody who 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 decides oh yeah or you know we we know, know quite a lot of things from peep's diaries because he just kept wrote down everything but not everybody did that's a that's an interesting parallel i i think i'm i know i'm grateful for what peeps wrote down and and the things that we get to know because of it so it yeah so if you think of something that seems like a nothing maybe we should all write it down somewhere yeah. <laughs> for future reference. Thank you, yeah. George. Thank you so much for being here today and taking okay. us through the history of marriage from Shakespeare's lifetime and helping us look at some of these little customs that we might otherwise have missed. It's been a fun conversation and I thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see some visual history that goes along with what we're talking about today, including some pictures, images, and woodcuts all about the history of marriage customs from Shakespeare's lifetime, be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. The show notes are where we pack all of the accompanying content that goes along with the conversation you're hearing today, including links to more history and more information about our guest, along with reliable sources you can use to explore this history further for links to books, websites, and even museum exhibitions that would help you if you want to explore this topic further. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash EP259. That's CassidyCash.com slash episode 259. If you enjoy walking around in turn of the 17th century England and exploring life the way Shakespeare would have lived it here with us on That Shakespeare Life, then consider becoming a patron. There are over 150 additional episodes in our back catalog, and you can listen to as many as you want from the patrons-only RSS feed. In addition to our back catalog of shows, patrons who support the show are treated to behind-the-scenes extras, including sneak peeks at which guests are coming up next, along with the chance to submit your own questions you want to be asked during an episode. 
And there are even bonus episodes we recorded only for our patrons. Explore all the benefits and join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by Cassidy Cash. That's me. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.